<laughs> I'm not actually gay. Someone just told yeah. me I shouldn't be, and I yeah. was like, just for spice, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll show you. Um, <laughs> You're like, and I'll be a Eurovision fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm Charlie Sohn, a screenwriter and journalist. I'm Agnes Reese, a pop singer and songwriter. And this is Mysteries of the Euroverse. On this episode, we're talking about Eurovision spinoffs. First, we deep dive into the differences between the Eurovision spinoffs that remain under the purview of the EBU, or European Broadcasting Union, and those that are commercially licensed. Then we talk to artist Riker Lynch, runner-up of the American Song Contest, as he takes us behind the scenes of the American Eurovision experiment. Finally, we sit down with John Carrion, the executive director of the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, and play a game examining the American Song Contest that we're calling Eurovision, Lost in Translation. We take a look behind the scenes at all the scandal songs and queens. So come along as we traverse all the mysteries of the Euroverse. Okay, we are back for another episode of Mysteries of the Euroverse. Magnus, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about spinoffs. What is it about Eurovision that makes it so successful? And is it really possible to replicate that? When you look at the EBU and you see that not even they can find a way, in most cases we're going to explore today, to replicate that success on any level, it brings up questions. The question going into this for me is what makes Eurovision special? Does it have to do with the time in which it was created? Does it have to do with the structure of the way it's run? Does it have to do with culturally, for instance, why Europe is different than America? People will look at the technical structure of what it is, how it's built and replicated. And I think that Sometimes people forget about the most important factor, the magic. And by the magic, we mean a developed and detailed system of public broadcasters and enough bureaucracy to properly manage a competition. Sure. Is that the magic? That's, that's, that's magic. The EBU created the Eurovision Young Musicians as a biennial music competition for young classical musicians. It was built on the BBC Young Musicians. So this idea came out of the UK. And it was going to run in the even years. And it has since, except 2020, because, you know. Classical music. <laughs> you had Eurovision Young Musicians run on the even years. But you need like a little sibling that can run on the odd years. Some of us are even, some of us are a little bit odd. Right. And, and who are those odd people, Charlie? So these are the Eurovision Young Dancers who get two compliments in one title. Young and Eurovision. Eurovision. <laughs> We've spent too much time together. <laughs> Basically from 84, it would be the idea that one of these competitions would run every year. But Young Musicians have been much more successful than Young Dancers. Eurovision Young Dancers, in 2018, it was officially canceled. And then in 2020, they ruled out bringing the contest back for the foreseeable future. Which actually brings new meaning to the phrase, dance like no one's watching. Oh, that was so sad. But true. If you look at viewerships for these, yeah. they're quite small. As are the contestants. <laughs> yes. This actually does go back to a thing that we talk about a lot, which is this tension in both Eurovision and the EBU between commercialization 
and this idea of we are an association of public broadcasters, we were founded with a purpose. You look at like a television program that is about elevating young classical musicians and you're like, no one at Netflix is sitting down. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like Probably the most famous spinoff of Eurovision, maybe yes. not the most famous in America, yeah. is the Junior Eurovision Song Contest. I mean, it's certainly the most uncomfortable. <laughs> Once again, do we have another competition born out of one of the public broadcasters? This time, it's Denmark. So they create, based off of their qualifying competition to Eurovision, they create MGP Junior in the year 2000. It's a success. Then Norway and Sweden are like, we love this. So they also created their own junior MGPs. And then was the birth of MGP Nordic. Now in 2003, yeah. inspired by MGP Junior in Denmark, inspired by MGP Nordic, Junior Eurovision is created. We don't go very long before there's a scandal. Story of my life, girl. <laughs> Sweden, Denmark, and Norway jointly pull out over concerns of the pressure on these young acts. This is the world's cruelest competition. Nine to 14, that's puberty. The entire point of this contest is, will this child's voice crack? They revealed uh, last year that there's a new child protection protocol. That's what they were. Which is called uh, auto-tuning in other countries. <laughs> yeah. Junior Eurovision has been very successful in many ways. If you pitched me all of these different shows, and you were like, would Asia Vision work? I'd be like, of course. Would Eurovision except with children work? I would be like, that is literally a 30 rock sketch. We had young dancers, we had young musicians, and then we had JESC. All of those were under the umbrella of the EBU. You have cultural affinity, you have the same governing board. We're now gonna be talking about Eurovision Asia, Eurovision Latin America, the American Song Contest, all of these attempts at creating a version of Eurovision that lives not on continental Europe. Here's what happened to some of them. The Eurovision Asia Song Contest, yeah. it was announced in 2015. The idea was dropped. There was Song of Africa, 2011, didn't happen. Africa Song, 2014, didn't happen. The All Africa Song Contest, 2015, didn't happen. The Afri Music Song Contest, and it was launched in 2018, and it did happen. It happened again in 2019 and 2020. There has not been a contest since. Eurovision Canada was announced in 2023. Yes. And it was going to be artists from each of the 10 provinces of Canada. Nothing has happened yet. The American Song Contest. It was hosted by the dynamic duo that is Snoop Dogg and Kelly Clarkson. The way the American Song Contest was structured is NBC sat there and picked, and New York didn't even know who was representing New York until the whole thing was announced, right? Yes. So no one in New York felt like the New York artist was, was representing New York. The fact that you have the people a part of that decision, I think builds an interest around the actual competition. You have personal investment to a certain degree. Like you could be like, we found this guy in Buffalo whose family has been here forever and whatever music he makes represents New York state. Or you could be like, what do people in New York want to celebrate right now? Look at Sweden with three black women singing gospel music. This is the mamas, mamas. for those who, of us who are newer to yes. Europe. Yes. 
someone can be like, wait, three black women singing gospel music was representing Swedish culture. The point of it was that Sweden nominated that. Correct. And that's my point. The thing that you're criticizing about ASC was a solution to an unsolvable problem. If you really wanted musical diversity, right? The New York representative is Adina Menzel. The problem is that even in these places that we talk about as the sources of these individual music cultures, like New York is the center of Broadway. If you actually let everybody in New York vote, it would be Ariana Grande. Which is the same but result that you would get in California. It's the same I result. I don't that know we, if that's true because the thing is, like, a lot of people would say the same thing when you look at qualifying rounds for Eurovision. Waterloo did not chart in Italy. Right. You would never be like, break up with your girlfriend didn't chart in Delaware. 100%. Even in a country where what we talk about is polarization, bifurcation, we don't know how to talk to each other anymore. We still are a monoculture. I just think that the problem is that when you're going to build this thing in a different place, you have to both try to feel like, how do we try and replicate some of that magic? And then also, how do we understand that this is different? So we have to lean into some other things. I, in particular, on this show, have criticized the EBU for, I would say, mishandling sometimes their mandate. Fundamentally, there is a mandate. Right, right. There is a purpose to it. Right. You are watching something more than just another music competition. Eurovision had the benefit of being able to grow through lack of commercial pressure. And I think that is actually really rooted in how commercially successful it is. There is something about the time period in which Eurovision was launched that I think there is a legitimate argument that maybe we've just missed the boat, right? There was something unique, I think, about the trauma of World War II which was that understanding your neighbor suddenly became existential. If we don't understand each other, what just happened was like a lot of people died. These days, like we are experiencing a lot of division, a lot of tension. For people to come together, for people to start talking to each other, it almost needs to feel existential. Do you think we're going to see a successful spinoff of Eurovision? I think the hope is that Eurovision will continue to expand. As someone who loves Eurovision, it's a pretty stunted, limited cultural exchange. There's a lot of diversity, but to the extent that as an American, my investment in this is the diversity of pop music or music people listen to around the globe. It's like that little bit of me that like got the like taste of the gateway drug through Eurovision wants global vision. Oh, amazing. I mean, so I've always been open to as much expansion as possible when it comes to your vision. And with that, I think we should get to our guests. Uh, First, we're going to be talking to Riker Lynch, who was a warbler on Glee, a runner-up on Dancing with the Stars, and most importantly for us, a runner-up on the American Song Contest. The American Song Contest may have only run for one season, but it featured a lot of really cool artists both established and up and coming. Then John Carrion, the executive director of the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, drops by for a game about the American Song Contest, where he brings his knowledge of Eurovision and his years of experience working with multiple choruses to what makes an American Song Contest number work. You know, one of the spinoffs we did not get into in this episode was Eurovision Choir. Maybe we could pitch John to be on the judging panel. Oh my God, I love that idea. 
But before we get to our guests, uh, let's hear a bit of Riker Lynch's second place American Song Contest hit, Feel the Love. And girl, I feel it. Riker, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. You started out in a band with your brothers, R5. And then most recently, you've been releasing music with Riker and Beachcombers. Can you talk about those two artistic experiences and how they allow you to show different sides of yourself as an artist? I'm from Colorado and I wanted to move out to Los Angeles and I wanted to entirely focus on acting and making movies. But uh, around the same time, my brother Rocky started teaching himself how to play guitar. And I was like, this is really cool. I just love performing. Pretty much anything in front of a crowd really lights my fire. Rocky starts sort of teaching me how to play guitar. And then Ross starts picking up guitar. And we meet Ellington Ratliff at this performing arts studio. We got my sister to play keyboards. So we had keys. And then I got on Glee. And this is around the time where Twitter is just getting going. I go on tour with Glee and my Twitter starts blowing up because people figure out that I'm the blonde warbler. They also figure out that I have this band, R5. So the fans start crossing over to the band. I come back from tour. We play this show in the Orange County Fair and like 50 people showed up and we were like, this is nuts. This is crazy. I remember carrying my bass out on stage and people were screaming like we're just setting up and fans are cheering. It was so cool. And then right after that, my brother Ross gets on Austin and Alley on the Disney Channel and we get full support from the Disney Channel. Hollywood Records signs us and that is like 2012 and we do basically hardcore touring, making music as R5 until about 2018. And then my brothers, Rocky and Ross started producing more of the music and it kind of turned into this new thing. They kind of rebranded and transitioned into this world, which I still play bass for. I guess they probably just got more personal. I think the boys were going through a little bit more, you know, struggles, darker times with their relationships or whatever. And I really didn't connect to the music very much. And I was missing this like upbeat positivity that I felt like I brought a lot to R5. So that's where I was like, well, I have all these songs and this tropical beachy world that I wanted to put out. So that's where I got into with Riker and the Beachcombers. And now it's just Riker Lynch because I got on American Song Contest, which is the American version of Eurovision. I have a song called Optimistic. So that is like a huge part of my soul. It's like deep ingrained in me for whatever reason. I don't know if you guys use Spotify, but you see the Spotify wrapped and it tells you like who your favorite artists are. I'm like my biggest fan. Like I'm not like not even <laughs> being funny. I'm like top 1% because I just love my songs. I love listening to them. They make me feel good. It's all about good vibes, good energy, nothing serious. We're not going to have any sad breakup songs coming from Riker and the Beachcombers. So uh, moving on from the bands, you were also on Dancing with the Stars. How did that experience, uh, you know, compare to your American Song Contest experience? 
So I did Dancing with the Stars in 2015, and then American Song Contest was several years later. I had so much dance experience from Glee. I was like, this is not going to be too hard. And I was so wrong. It was so hard. Like physically, it was just draining. I remember being like week six doing the tango and just every inch of my body hurt. My wrist was killing me from all the leading of the body. I was like, if honestly, if I go home, I'm fine with that because I'm so tired. (laughs) And I didn't go home. I went all the way to the end. So that was more, much more physical. It's like 10 weeks, basically. American Song Contest, three episodes easy. You hosted the World Choreography Awards. The first one was so fun. There was no teleprompters or anything. So I literally had to be memorized. And I had done theater before. So that was just kind of like memorizing lines. And I had a blast. Like Kenny Ortega was there. He actually offered me a part in Rocky Horror Picture Show right after that. But I was going on tour with R5. (laughs) So I had to turn it down, unfortunately. That's amazing. Yeah, that would have been cool. But so maybe in another universe, (laughs) or should I say Euroverse? (laughs) <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. There we go. Already doing our promo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to... Jesus, I was going to make the same joke. <laughs> what inspired you to apply for the American Song Contest? And can you talk about what it was like when you found out that you were in? This is a fun story. You know, the casting is going around the world trying to find their person for Colorado. And they want my brothers to do it. So I would have been on the show playing bass for them, most likely. But they're going back and forth. And at the last second, my brother's like, you know what? We don't want to do this. And so my manager pivots and says, Riker, what if we pitch you for the show? And I'm like, absolutely. There's a crowd, live television, sign me up. I was told I was going to do the show like three days before like the first production meeting, I think where they had all the artists, we had a huge zoom and all the artists were on board. So it was a quick turnaround. My acting manager actually at the time, it was so fast. I didn't have time to like inform them about it. So they found out that I was on the show on Instagram. They weren't very happy. (laughs) Oh my God. That is incredible. (laughs) Yeah. When it comes to feel the love, did you have that song already? Or was that like, post getting cast? Oh, that was completely post getting cast. I got on the show and I had a handful of songs and I got on a phone call with Andreas Carlson and my manager. And Andreas was super excited. I basically told him what my vibe was and he was fired up. And basically he went off and and got all of his top tier songwriters together with like Desmond Child and Jimmy. And they basically just sent me back the melodies And it was just placeholder lyrics. What sounded like, I feel the love right now. And I wrote back and I was like, that's the lyric. I feel the love right now. It feels so good to be alive. And so they hit it out of the park. It was just fantastic. That songwriting team has a a fair amount of Eurovision cred. Desmond Child, in addition to his storied career, wrote for Eurovision. And I believe Jimmy Jansen has been kind of a Melody Festival and uh, mainstay. Yeah, they, we were talking about that, kind of giving me like what the show's going to roughly be like because from their experience and whatnot. It was the first time I had recorded a song over Zoom because they were all in Sweden and I was in Colorado. They were on Zoom and I just had a, a, an engineer that would like push the talk back button and they would give me notes from the Zoom. But it worked and it was super fun. Were you aware that this was an adaptation of Eurovision? And were you familiar with Eurovision at all? And if you were, like, what did you know about it? I was a tiny, tiny, tiny bit familiar with Eurovision. I knew it from Celine Dion talking about it and seeing the movie Aline, which is a French film about Celine Dion. 
and the Will Ferrell movie. Other than that, I really didn't know anything at all. Oh, you know what they did? They showed us tons of videos on the booths because we all have like our own booth with like our city. So in Eurovision, it would be their country. So we watched that. We watched how the scoring works because we were all very confused on the scoring in the beginning. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then when it came time to doing like the second round and the third round, most of the performers were like, can we change up the performance? And everyone was like, no, no, no. You know, Eurovision, they do the same thing. They were like, you're lucky you're getting a little bit extra performance. Like we got dancers or we got extra pyro or whatever. So they gave us a little bit. I do remember one comment on um, <laughs> on my YouTube or something that was like, this is a song that Germany would compete with. They were like, it's super fun, but it's not going to win anything. <laughs> that was the comment. <laughs> it was striking as a Eurovision fan to see how your number evolved from the first heat to the semifinal and then to the finale. Can you talk about that development? Like obviously the ending with your wife, the adding of dancers in the semi. How did that collaboration work with the production team? A couple of weeks before, because I'm in Colorado, I had a Zoom with the heads of the production design, basically. And we just had a conversation of what I am, what my music is about. And they had the song at this point. They came back like a week later, we had another call and they showed me a bunch of examples of like a rough mock-up of the stage. And I was basically like, this is amazing. They asked if I wanted dancers and I was like, I don't necessarily need it. And then in the back of my mind, I was like, maybe if it goes on, we can add dancers or if we want to change something up. Then when it comes time for the semifinals, they had the idea of like, it'll look like you're pulling people out of the crowd, but it'll be the dancers. And I was like, oh, that's super fun. They watched my video and choreographed the things that I was already doing. And then once my wife sees that I have dancers, she's like, hey, so I want to get up there and dance with you. And I was like, hey, that's a great idea. The song's all about feeling the love. And you're the person that I feel the love with. And that was such a wonderful ending at at the final. It encapsulates the message of the song. And it was like kind of the perfect surprise that like gave you something if you had been watching the previous performances. Yeah. And I was so happy they let me go last because... Alexa and I have such a big production and it takes a while to change that stage. I knew one of us was going to have to pre-tape. And I was like, please don't let me pre-tape. Please don't let me pre-tape. And she had to pre-tape and I got to go last. It was great. I was so happy. (laughs) How well did you get to know the other contestants hand in hand with that? There was this group of like older, more established artists and then younger artists. And was there, did that feel separate? Did it feel like one community? As far as the legends artists and then like us newer artists go, for watching the playback and uh, all of a sudden behind me, I hear, Riker, that's a hit. And I turn around and it's Jewel. And I was like, oh my God, so sweet. She was so nice. The first episode that I was on, Nico and Brooke, everybody was really communicative and hitting people up on Instagram. Hey, we're going to watch the episode from prior if anybody wants to join at the hotel. And everyone's dressing rooms are like right next to each other. So you can hear everybody doing vocal warmups and whatnot. And I remember hearing Nico doing their vocal warmups and they just were beautiful. They're amazing singers and their harmonies together. I was just like, holy crap. I just had Nico on my podcast, which was super fun to catch up. Nico, obviously they're engaged, but they'll be married, but that's a married musical duo. 
And then another podcast guest of mine, John Vaughn from the band Public, he has another musical project with his wife. And my wife always wants to dance with me on stage. So I was like, we could do like a show, like a couple's show. It would be fun. So I'm working on that. Who knows? Oh my God, amazing. And also, oh, awesome. I feel like these stories on the Bachelor franchise, they always want these like really, they always want to feature music and, and hit that <laughs> romance hard. So I'm just saying, you got to call ABC because... Uh, Oh yeah, that should be that should be. I'm just telling you right. That should be a date on the Bachelor where where y'all are performing. So I'm I'm putting it out. Oh, there. I love it. Yeah, they go. Nico's singing. John and his wife are singing. My wife and right. I are dancing. Yeah, we're playing. Oh, that's cool. That's a good. That's a good pitch. I'm gonna I'm gonna hit him up. I know a couple people at ABC. That's right. There we go. And then when when I see it on the show, because that show is my guilty pleasure, I'll be like, yes, I had a little part in that. <laughs> One of the big debates in Eurovision is the power balance of the people versus the juries. Both you and Alexa were really elevated by the public. So, you know, do you have any thoughts on what the people saw that the juries might have missed? Absolutely. If it was up to the juries, I would have went home week one. So I am happy with the people having the power, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was literally at the bottom of every episode when the jury votes came in and then it'd be like the people and I'd be like, whoop. Amazing. I mean, Amazing. I think the thing is that Jewel knew that the song was a hit. Um, <laughs> that's the industry endorsement you need right there. Oh, exactly. That was all I needed. And I was like, we're good. <laughs> what was the hardest part of the process for you? Singing the pre-chorus, especially the third time around when the music comes down. I'm just out of breath. Got back with my vocal coach who I've been working with since I was like 16. And he was having me run up and down the room for like 10 minutes while singing. And I'm like running semi-fast. I'm not like jogging. Just to find those little tiny moments that I'm able to to take a breath, you basically just gas yourself out and then you're learning where you can just, just, and it's all you need to just be able to finish the line. In correlation with that, like what would you say the highlight of the process was for you? Oh, highlight da- dance with my wife, for sure. Also, everything that was going on with COVID, we had to like test and everyone's got to wear masks and everything. And my mom at the time, she's still going through cancer treatment, but she was going through like pretty heavy cancer treatment. So she didn't get the vaccine. We had to get doctor's notes and like everything just for her to be able to come to the finale. So that meant a lot to me that we were able to work that with the health and safety and everybody. And so she got to be there with my brothers. Also having my sister on stage, all of them with me. My brother-in-law played drums for the first show. There's a lot of highlights. I have to ask, what are Kelly Clarkson and Snoop Dogg like? Um, do you have any oh, like, great fun question. stories? Involving Snoop them? Dogg is exactly how you think of him. He's not putting on a show. He's so smooth. He like glides across the floor. Like I don't even think he's walking. He's like hovering. My mom was there and I'm like, Snoop, this is my mom. And he gives my mom a big kiss on the cheek. And he's like, nice to meet you. So he was so great. He's so funny too. And Kelly was so sweet. She loved my sister. She was like obsessed with my sister. Her, they may have become best friends. They might be texting buddies right now. <laughs> and it was funny to watch the stand-ins kind of try to have their cadence of like how Snoop talks. And it's just like, he's just got such a special thing that it's really hard to imitate. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about both your filmmaking and and the podcast, but also if you could give us a little bit of how those interact for you. So basically I, I have Glass Half Full with Riker and Bobby, my really, really good friend who's a comedian, Bobby Ulrich. And the podcast is fun conversations while we're having a beverage, whether it be a cup of coffee or a cocktail. And we like having guests on to share what they do to have positivity in their life and good energy. And as far as filmmaking goes, directing movies is just 
really, really deep in my core of what I truly love more than anything. I made this little short film called Lift Me Up, which you can watch on YouTube just to see if I could do it. I was like, I don't know. Maybe it sucks. Maybe it doesn't. And so it was like, oh, this was super fun. And then I had this idea for Aliens on Halloween. I just thought it was a a funny concept. And um, I took that to the film festival circuit. We got into Cannes. And it was like, people like this and people are are reacting to it. I just like entertaining people. I want people to be able to escape from the world for a little bit, whether that's for, through my music, through the podcast, through the movies. That's a perfect place to wrap. Riker, thank you so much for thank this. Thank you so, so much. This has been a thank really you guys. Good... Yeah, this was yeah, awesome. Thanks so much for having me. Great stuff. Great questions. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Eurovers. One of the most troubled Eurovision spinoffs was the short-lived American Song Contest, produced by Eurovision producers Christer Bjorkman and Anders Lenhoff, and with Kelly Clarkson and Snoop Dogg hosting, the show featured big names and upstarts alike, but somehow failed to capture that special Eurovision magic. To help us explore why... We are here with John Carrion. John served as the chairman of the London Gay Men's Chorus from 2013 to 2017, and then has been with the New York City Gay Men's Chorus since October 2021. Welcome, John. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, as, as you said, I'm the executive director of the New York City Gay Men's Chorus, but definitely here in a personal capacity, so all opinions are definitely my own. Well, we will be polling all of the members of the New York City (laughs) Gay Men's Choruses to see if they agree with your song choices. John is also a major Eurovision fan, which is important for this game. We're going to ask John to use his knowledge of Eurovision to judge these numbers from the American Song Contest. We're then going to talk with John about how we feel these songs would have played at Eurovision. Hopefully through that, we're going to get at exactly what's missing in the American Song Contest and maybe move towards a sort of understanding of What goes wrong when Eurovision tries to export itself? But before we get to that, John, what's your relationship to Eurovision and how did you come to it? So in 2017, my partner, we had been together just a few months and he said to me, so you know almost sheepishly, I, I really love Eurovision. I was like, that's great. I'm oh my really, God, he really came happy. out to you. That's he so came out and, you know, it was really nice. It was, it's like, to be clear, I am straight. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really love Eurovision. I hope that's okay with you. Anyways, the next year comes around and he says, oh, we have a whole group of friends going and we just have a blast. Like, it's so fun. You know, people are getting drinks, having a good time, meeting strangers. I totally get why people love this now. What do you know about the American Song Contest? If anything. Yeah. I remember seeing the signs for it in the subway and I was like, I should watch that. And then I did not watch that. Um. (laughs) It's kind of wild how it just came and went. Yeah. Even though you have Kelly Clarkson and Snoop Dogg. Right. Macy Gray, Jewel, Cisco. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. Well, I think they were really trying to prove the point that what separates Eurovision from the average television competition is that established artists are part of it. Like, it would be really weird if suddenly Dina Menzel was like, I'm going on America's Got Talent. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you're going to click the first clip. And I will say, after talking about Eurovision so many times, there is something about the sentence I'm about to say. No, no, I wrote it and I laughed. (laughs) First, representing Connecticut. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Mm -hmm. We have Michael Bolton with Beautiful World. Wow. Okay. Got the Industrial Revolution taking place above him. 
There's more than six people on stage, so that's already one big yeah. difference I'm seeing. We're making a beautiful world. I guess my, my immediate yeah. thought is Eurovision doesn't take itself too seriously. And I think sometimes a clip like this very much does. Yeah, Michael Bolton yeah. definitely takes it. <laughs> you know, like, exactly, right. Like Finland this year, right? Right. There's 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 a hilarity yes. to that. Not and even though the performance is excellent, right? But it's obviously meant to be a joke in some ways as well, right? How dare you? <laughs> cha 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 is my Rosetta Stone. It's my declaration of I voted for it. Don't <laughs> get me wrong. I was absolutely voting for it. So yeah. I was just uh, editing the uh, Sally and Triplet uh, interview today. And when she was like praising Lorene by being like, I mean, she's just incredible. Sandwiched in that thing. We were like, so do, why do you think that the UK didn't do well this year? But it's just not very good. <laughs> With that song in particular, I actually think it was the arena versus television problem. Because when you listen to it and watch it, I just don't think the vocals are as clear as they were in the arena. That's right? true. But yeah. I also think they staged it as if she was like Beyonce, right? The big, sure. big photos of her. But the challenge of Eurovision is that even if you're a big star, most people who watch you are seeing you for the first time. Right. Yeah. We don't know Mae Muller enough that like that's not going to sell it to me. Because I also think that that lyric is really good. Oh, I, the and opening lyric is so yeah, great. It's the same thing in a totally different way that happened with Tan Selena's uh, Who the Hell is Edgar? Oh my God, you're such a good writer. It's not me, it's Edgar. Who the hell is Edgar? There's a ghost in my body and he is a lyricist. It is Edgar Allan Poe and I think he can resist. Watching the music video for both, it like supported the narrative of the lyric. So you then ended up listening to the lyric and following, watching Mae Muller's performance. As much as I love that song, I was like, I don't understand. People like us will listen to the songs beforehand. But for most people watching, it's the very first time they've ever seen that song. The thing that really supports that is like, Tay and Selena did really well in the semifinal televote. And they just didn't do well in the grand finale televote when normies, normal right. people when tune normies. in. normies. <laughs> yeah, <Wow>. yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but speaking of doing well, how well do we think Michael, Michael Bolton, Bolton did? did? So we're asking, did it make it to the grand final? I'm going to say yes, because it was Michael Bolton. And you are 100% correct. Yes. You are. He uh, finished seventh overall wow. in the top 10, which the entire finale is... 10. So. <laughs> sure, but it sounded better. <laughs> uh, now, which land area are we representing next? So representing the great state of Ohio and also representing in so many ways my heart, we have Macy Gray with the song Every Night. Um, <laughs> have you seen the state of Ohio? Uh, <laughs> Again, I am struck by how many people are on stage. I like the colors, the huge band back there. It feels fine. There's sort of no lift to it, right? If you think of something that you see in Eurovision, there's always massive staging, people moving everywhere, colors and... 
huge sets. Obviously not every song, but I think that's what makes a lot of Eurovision numbers. Whereas this one sort of, uh, it just sort of ends. Actually, the stage design of Eurovision is such a huge part of what makes it great. And this feels very much like it's in a theater. Right. The back of the stage does one thing, which it opens up. Uh, right. And, that's and it's also such a classic thing I think we see from the Super Bowl as well, that when we try to build size, it's like add more people, add more people, add more people. The reason I think you get hamster wheels and burning pianos and all that is you go, <laughs> right. I can't bring 100 people on stage, so I have to find other ways to get size. Yeah. Now, um... Macy you listen Gray. to Macy Gray with Every Night. But uh-huh. the question is, did her performance make it to Every Night? This one, I'm actually going to say no. It was quite a bit less impressive to watch than even the last one. So my guess is no. Girl. You are absolutely correct. Yes. She did not even make the semis. Wow. So moving from Ohio to Oklahoma, this is Alexa with Wonderland. Yeah. There's a lot happening here. Yeah, she's representing the musical. Ooh, this is the musical. This is Rodgers and Hammerstein. So this, there's a lot going on here. This actually, so far, looks the most Eurovision-like to me with kind of even the funky floor happening. There's lots of lights going on. There's great staging here. Has enough of a pop beat. You've got kind of the star. Wow, what kind of finish there? So this one feels most like Eurovision to me, actually. That feels like it would have done really, really well, like extremely well, um, would be my guess. I'm guessing that made it to the grand final. Oh, you are nailing it at this game. Yes. Yeah, three she for three, baby. won the competition. There you go, see? And I think there's something like great about the fact that you identified this as the most Eurovision act because that was kind of my feeling mm. while I was watching these. Right. It's dynamic, Agreed. it's surprising. The staging has the size and right. lift to it that mm-hmm. a Eurovision act yep, does. absolutely. Eurovision itself, in 1956, obviously it wasn't this because it couldn't be, but it, it took some time to gain momentum. That's and, true. And a lot of it happened even in the last few years. Ago. So this is Marilyn, Marilyn, represented by Cisco. The song is called It's Up. So as I'm watching this, there's lots going on here, right? Which I also really like this fire, which we love in Eurovision. I keep get, can't get over how many people are on the stage, but it's big, there's lights, there's a lot going on here. This feels like it would definitely have gone to the grand final. Uh, the song itself feels fine. It's yeah. it's middle. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely not up. <laughs> it's not <laughs> the same joke. Uh, <laughs> two ways you could make that joke. Uh, yes. So the conclusion, I just want to make sure I don't misinterpret yeah. any answers here. I like, think it would have gone to the final, this one. So this, this is the oh. first incorrect oh, one, John. It failed to make the semi, really? too. Oh, wow, really? I'm surprised by that, actually. Yeah, as someone who has, like, a lot of goodwill towards Cisco, yeah, I found this very disappointing. Do you want me to re-record that where I get it right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, I, I, think, I think it probably didn't even make the semis. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh, my God. God. Like, so right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and now we're moving to the jewel of Alaska. Jewel. Right. With the story. All right. So she's got her hat there. She's singing with the tree in the background. Obviously going for something ice theme there with all the white. That would be my guess. Well, she's in Alaska nature. <laughs> got some pyrotechnics. I want to say that this did not 
make it because it just isn't giving me much of anything. It feels very bland. But then yeah, I feel like you're going to tell me it absolutely did make it. I'm going to go with my instinct. I'm going to say it did not. I mean, and John, what we learned constantly on this podcast is stick to your guns, be yourself. <laughs> the message of Eurovision, you're 100% right. This did not make the semifinals yeah. either. Right. Okay. Uh, we are coming to our final song, which is Tanel. Mm -hmm. She is representing American Samoa with the song Full Circle. Okay, so it feels in some ways smaller in scale, even with the pyrotechnics. There's a sort of an attempt to bring a Samoan type of culture to the stage, because I've seen the trees there. I've never been to American Samoan, but that's my I've guess. I've heard that they have trees. Yeah, <laughs> I've heard that they have trees. They probably have Which is actually, I think you're right. Having grown up in Brooklyn is the thing that I say about like every other place. I'm like, they have trees. My guess is whether or not this would have made the final. Well, this is a hard one. I feel like it actually might have. You are correct. Oh, right. It did make the uh, the final and it did even better than Michael Bolton. Yes. Wow. One better than Michael Bolton, okay. which is really the bar six, I try to clear. Sixth place. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, this was another number that to me felt like it had a little bit of the Eurovision thing. Like you said, like it's rooted in an actual place. Right. I think a huge part of the beauty of Eurovision is that the EBU doesn't get to pick the songs. Right. Even the smartest people the EBU could pull together would never be able to curate a list. Right. They would have never picked Let Three. They would have never picked Cha 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 or yeah. whatever. Right. And, I think and you can see that they would never do that because the smartest people the EBU can pull together are on the juries. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair. I do think for the success of that competition, you really needed to feel like people in Oklahoma tuned in being like, go Oklahoma. Yeah. When you think about Eurovision countries, whether that's like an internal selection, it's still like mm. always run by the public broadcasters. So right. there's this sense of like, May Muller is representing the UK because the BBC wanted Want May Muller to represent them. These flags start to mean something. Right. Because we all have those countries where we go, Ugh, I love this country. They always send something crazy. Yeah. Or people love or hate Sweden because right. Sweden will always send a good pop song. Right. But some people find it boring. I think there's also this other thing. They had famous people in the contest, which is the way Eurovision works. It's not Adele and Beyonce on the American Song Contest. Right. And Kelly Clarkson is hosting and not performing. Mm -hmm. I think the category of famous, it's closer to the UK when they send Bonnie Tyler a little right. bit. You know what right. I mean? Who right. also didn't like, do well. Right. right. I also think that in many ways, Eurovision voters are voting for the underdogs in some ways, right? I think they yeah. want someone new to win. Maybe if they took a little bit more time to create the national selection, quote unquote, but on, on the state by state on scale. Maybe more people would feel like, oh, this is who we're sending to this thing. I am a little bit terrified to see who Florida chooses, though. Oh, like, sure. We're yeah. just going to have like half of this country nominate Trump to be uh, in the in American, American But I think contest. this is where you got to, as a producer, be comfortable with the fact that you have to, in certain areas, be hands off. Yeah. I understand that to launch a contest like this and then try to do like 56 national sure. finals would be like insane. But even if they could have just partnered with local organizations, I mean, even think Rockwood Music Hall is going to host the competition to yeah. select New York's entry, whatever sure. it might be, right. I think could have really created some sort of like grassroots movement in each state where people feel like we sent this. Was the time just right for Eurovision where you had a really fractured Europe.
that really needed to find a way to come together around something. Part of the problem is like we don't really have a desire to come together. <laughs> but also even even to take something American, take the Super Bowl performance. Sure. The first one was Carol Channing. Oh my God, really? I think I realized that. I would have been a football fan. Yeah. <laughs> But like, spoiler alert, she was not on a floating platform right. while pregnant. The scale grows. It's this like, is an image I'm not going to get <laughs> out of my head. Eurovision Canada was announced. Seems to be on ice. Mm. As many things in Canada are. <laughs> yeah. The Latin American Eurovision seems to be on ice. And then there's been floated the idea of uh, Eurovision India. Right. Wow. So the question is, is there a way to do the Eurovision formula outside of Eurovision today that can be successful? My guess is that it's initially a problem of scale, right? So if you start too big, you're expecting too much because you're not going to create Eurovision in the United States overnight, right? There's just yeah. no way. How did it start? With seven countries. And then it built slowly from there, right? And now, because it's such a production and you get all this kind of worldwide notoriety, 300 million people watching you on one day, that's what's going to make this work. So I think yeah. if you're going to create it, you have to do it small. It's almost like... You start with the tri-state area. Exactly. Like the state. I was literally about to say like the Northeast, and then you start to build that out. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think that India Vision feels like probably the one that would be the easiest translation from Eurovision, just because different languages, different ethnicities. I was in Jaipur in India, and I went to see, it was a Bollywood movie, but it was in like a giant theater. The movie was yeah, in right. four different languages. Wow. Everyone was transitioning back and forth between languages. Weirdly talking about it now, it's like the closest thing to the Eurovision mm, experience that cool. I've had. Right. Everybody is enjoying the same piece of art and even Eurovision songs in Serbian or Ukrainian are still designed to communicate to mm -hmm. people who don't speak the language. So yeah. I'm going to put my money on Eurovision India or India Vision. I think that's a really key point of Eurovision, right? It's like, so I go and I listen to a song in Italian, not speaking Italian. And yeah. I can know that I can enjoy that song. You hear people trying to repeat the words who are just doing it phonetically, which is great, right? <laughs> you you will not get that really in the American Song Contest. I think the thing is that if American Song Contest was going to be successful, it's not going to have the same cultural exchange as Eurovision. Correct. Right. But I do think that when we see what this sort of, the feeling of being a flyover state in the US and ignored in the media and all that right. stuff, I really think there was an opportunity there to make the smaller states, more rural states, yeah. feel like they had this television show mm -hmm. where they got to send something of theirs. Right. Um, I love how in this, it's like the Dakotas are the Balkans. No, but in some ways they are. Yeah, right? but, yeah. but that's the thing. Even when you look at Europe, right, there is this sort of element of that Western Europe has much more access to the world's pop culture yeah. than the East has. Yeah. There's never a world where prime time on BBC, right. there's going to be a song in Serbian Correct. if it wasn't for Eurovision. Right. And then suddenly you find that that song in Serbian is charting outside of that. Yeah. Let these states, however it makes sense, pick their artists right. themselves. Sometimes you're going to find silly things. And once in a while, there might be an artist that's actually having some good traction. In Eurovision, everybody's on the same playing field, no matter where they are in Europe or what sort of political status, right? And you often see an inversion where you'll see places like Moldova and Serbia at the top, and then the UK and Germany at the bottom. Right, right. But Eurovision does have this sort of dual identity, right? Like big commercial festival. It's also run by an association of public broadcasters. And... 
So when you talk about places with smaller populations who don't have great advertising demographics, how do we elevate them? You know, I think that's probably a harder thing to do when you're on a commercial network. And when you're like, I'm producing a television show that is supposed to get ratings, period. There is something that gets a little scary when we talk about some of these states forming a a block. I'm like, we're one step away from secession. (laughs) No, no, no. That's how I think we're going to get gay rights. I think that Eurovision gave us more gay rights. With so much representation that had to be broadcast in, that you couldn't opt out of that, right? Oh, That's exactly. I literally thought you were saying the way that we were going to get more gay rights is if some of these states secede from... Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, a little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> if each one has their own sort of quote-unquote national selection, right, their state selection, that's what's going to give them the pride in that, in that person, right? right? I think that's so essential to the identity of the contest, and it provides the variety that makes it interesting. Right. Yeah. I also will say, I think the other thing is, if they also created this idea that the winning state would host, the idea that it could bring a ton yeah. of money into the state, true. financial incentives are important it's too. true. I think that's the conclusion that they basically need to do a season two, but they need us on the production team. John, thank, thank you, you so much, so much for, for joining us. Thanks this for having is, me. This was great. And I can't wait for us to get working on season two of the American Song Contest. Uh, yes. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this episode was so successful that it deserves its own spinoff. Okay, slow down. Before we can work on that, we have quite the episode next week. We'll be back to our regular Wednesday release schedule with an episode about Eurovision icons. We're going to talk about how changes in music, style, and yes, international politics influence what makes a Eurovision icon. And we'll talk a bit about how Eurovision icons themselves have changed the genres they occupy the nations they represent, and even the identity of Eurovision itself. This episode is going to be a very special treat, as we've got not one, not two, but three Eurovision icons coming up, all who have made it to the contest multiple times. Elisabeth Andreasen, or Bettan, who in addition to being a contestant in Eurovision four times representing Norway and Sweden, is one of only a few performers to both win the contest and also play second in a completely different year. Then we've got Ireland's Linda Martin, who I'm basically obsessed with at this point. Um, She also shares the distinction of being one of a few performers to place both first and second in the contest. We also talked to Senhit, who represented San Marino multiple times, making it to the finale with a song featuring Flo Rida. And even more exciting, Charlie, this is the first time we were able to interview a Eurovision artist in person here in New York City, baby. Yeah. Uh, We caught her before her concert at $3 Bill. And I have to say, any artist who ends her show with a dance pop cover of I Am What I Am from Lacage automatically wins my heart. I mean, this incredible lineup of artists are so talented that they've been asked back to Eurovision again and again. And I will say that's kind of similar to how our American guest's track record has gone. Yeah, I mean, our American guest is Barrett Foa, a fan favorite on NCIS LA, who made his return not once, not twice, but for 12 seasons on that show. He's now starring in the soon-to-be-released Shonda Rhimes White House drama, The Residence. We hope you'll enjoy the guests next week as much as we did. But until then, happy happy Eurovision. Eurovision. 